0: All right, well, it's uh, good to be with you all again. Um, So we were looking previously at virtue, the natural law. Last time we had a whole day on the thing of contraception and the natural law. Today we're looking at what's been called various issues. Um, So I'm going to cover this morning, or attempt to, divorce and remarriage. Then, In the afternoon, um, homosexuality and uh, IVF. So that's actually quite a lot. Um, So this is only an overview, but the footnotes of the notes I've given you, quote different documents, uh, so if you want to follow up further things on those, that would be um, a way to do that. Now perhaps before I say anything more about divorce and remarriage, I have to mention the elephant in the room and the Synod of Bishops, um, and I'll speak bluntly and say we have um, a large body of our bishops who are dissenting from what has been the Catholic faith. Uh, and I think we're in a situation very much parallel to the Aryan crisis when you had a large body of bishops who were bishops with the full authority of bishops and going around teaching as bishops but teaching something contrary to the faith. And that's not a good position to be in Uh, and obviously I I could have a long detour on that but I want to start by acknowledging that that is the case, what I am going to articulate to you is the Catholic faith, as it has been taught Uh, as it has been defined in our councils taught most recently in the Catechism articulated by John Paul II and it's not a teaching that is able to change without rejecting what has been the faith we can't it's not coherent to be a Catholic and to reject the Council of Trent it's not coherent to be a Catholic and reject what has defined our position contrary to the Orthodox what has defined our position contrary to Henry VI um, what the martyrs died for now where that will leave me if our Synod of Bishops says something to the contrary I don't know I'm very confident if there was a council, that it wouldn't say anything contrary to Trent. A Synod is not infallible, and a Synod is capable of saying all kinds of bizarre things. We look historically, there have been rather dubious Synods. Um, But in the official articulation of what the Church teaches, what it means to be a Catholic, what it means to believe in infallibility, is that the church hasn't been wrong for 2,000 years. The church hasn't imposed a random obligation that it was wrong about for 2,000 years. That on faith and morals, the church does not err. Okay, that's a bit of an introduction, but um, to acknowledge that before we go any further. So, you have a big wad of notes. Um, We're going to aim to do the first five pages of that before lunch. So starting with uh, divorce and remarriage, um, I've tried to root the whole thing by turning directly to what our Lord himself says in the Gospels. So, that as I put the subheading, that remarriage is forbidden by Christ. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Or in Matthew... It was also said whoever divorces his wife let him give her a, writ of, a certificate of divorce but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity makes her an adulteress and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery uh, and that same clear teaching is articulated by Saint Paul with Saint Paul saying that it isn't my words but from the Lord um, so This is what the Gospels say. What about the unchastity clause? So except in the case of unchastity. So the Greek says porneia. Now, many of our translations have translated that as adultery, except in the case of adultery. But actually, the Greek for adultery would be moikeia. And it doesn't say that. It says porneia. So it's some kind of unchastity. Now, how do we interpret that? Well, as I've said there, there are kind of two standard Catholic interpretations of that text. The first I've listed there is the interpretation that would be given by kind of modern historical critical analysis that would look at the context around the his- history of the time. And it says, i said there, the Pornea Clause refers to certain incestuous Gentile unions that were common among the Gentiles, but that the Jews considered unchaste. Such unions were thus never real marriages, and one was obliged to leave them, and one would be, they'd be therefore free to marry someone else.
1: An example would
0: be... The text says certain types of... that you'd be too closely married to somebody, else, related by blood, certain types of cousins and so forth, that the Gentiles had, but that the Jews would have said... No, you can't have that but as a matter.
1: The specific line, could, could you, to where the specific line second cousin,
0: third cousin? Well, a second cousin is fine by our laws, isn't it? Um, mm. But...
1: But by this by this law, it doesn't... it does not Going back, like going back to the original. Yeah. What what degree of separation would they have required for it to be just?
0: I don't know, it's the honest answer.
1: Um... That would
2: be rabbinical stuff, rabbinical teaching, that rather than scripture per se. Yeah,
0: not, not necessarily Torah, Soviet tradition. I would guess, um, yeah. but we know in all kinds of other things that the Gentiles had a different notion of marriage to the Jews, mm-hmm. so that this interpretation would say what this is saying is that those Gentile unions aren't real marriages, so therefore, if those Gentiles become believers, they're not to treat those as marriages. So that's one interpretation of the, the porneia clause. The other, um, the second there, and this actually is the tra- tradi- interpretation we find in most of the patristic writers, is that the exception refers to a ground for separation, but not to a ground for remarriage. Yes, yeah, sorry, you need to say not to a ground for mm-hmm. marriage Rather an important difference than negative there.
1: Yeah, no problem. That's. Yeah.
0: So, this yeah. Is, just to be clear, if yeah. that number, number two, which you said <coughs> is the one which is the farthest, mm-hmm. farthest girl, that in, in this case, it is a ground for separation. Mm-hmm. but the couple the couple separate but they may not marry again right. Okay. Right. so is
2: it's is it a valid marriage it's is always a it,
0: presumption right. is it, so it's a valid marriage but because of adultery you decide to separate yeah, yeah, um, gotcha. so what our Lord is referring to is a reason to separate okay. but not a reason for you then to be free to marry somebody oh, else yes. so that's the sorry the,
3: but, but if the if the marriage is as in clause one, mm-hmm. invalid, you mm. are free to marry because you weren't married. Correct. Yeah. So, the second um, point <coughs> two is with reference to adultery, mm-hmm.
0: which is not a not the correct translation. It's not the correct translation, but it is how a lot of the patristic writers, presumably using other translations, um, is how the patristics, or a lot of them at least, interpreted it. And interesting, as I'm about to say, in our canon law today, it's the first given reason as a ground for separation. So as I've said there in the little subheading, separation, a Catholic couple may separate, and even legally divorce in civil law, though in the eyes of God and his church, they remain married. So you're married... You separate for whatever reasons, you are still married in the sight of God. You remain separate for a long, long time, even until death. But you, even though separate, you remain married, that marital bond is still there. And people say, someone was saying to me recently, oh well you know in our modern context people travel more and they separate and whatever. Well, if you read many of the ancient medieval writers commenting on this, they'll talk about husbands that have been away as soldiers for decades and come back to their wife. Actually, there's nothing radically new about our situation. There are differences in our situation, but the difficulty of being married and separate and the question of remarriage is not a new question. It's not a new difficulty. Sorry, sidetracked there. No, except in the case of adultery, any separation must be temporary in the sense that it may only be morally maintained as long as the grounds for the separation remain. So, my husband has some kind of violent mental illness such that I'm not able to physically remain with him. Therefore, we separate while he's being treated. Um, As soon as he reaches a stage where he is able to socially interact and it's possible to be together again, the grounds for being separate no longer are there and therefore you should come back together. One example. But whatever the grounds for separation are, you're only separate as long as those grounds remain. So let's read through the bottom there. But that
1: doesn't apply to adultery, except in the case of
0: adultery. That's the one, okay, yes. So if,
1: some, if, if suppression takes place because of an adulterous relationship, mm-hmm. if that adulterous relationship ends, is the separation then to be ended as well?
0: Well, let me read through what Canon law says, because <coughs> that's a good question. So I've quoted there from the canons at the bottom. So before I read the canons, have you done canon law of marriage have you done canon law as an ordinary group? A quicker view of canon law is, is what an effective structure of accepting law. Some of those have doesn't happen, because they're
2: all different years. Right. The second year we will have, yes. We, we have done, we did in the
0: first year. And the rep, those of you who haven't, will at some other stage? Yeah. In okay. their set, which will, yes, because they overlap the two years, okay. they right. will do it right. next year. Okay. <coughs> I'm not a canon lawyer. I'm going to quote a couple of canons, but I'm not a canon lawyer. Um, so, just as I'm not an expert on Gentile incestuous Unions, I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly not an expert on canon law. But I'm going to read this section here, what the canons say. Spouses have the obligation and the right to maintain their common conjugal life, unless a lawful reason excuses them. Then it gives the first ground for being separate. It is earnestly recommended that a spouse motivated by Christian charity and solicitous for the good of the family should not refuse to pardon an adulterous partner and should not sunder the conjugal life. Nevertheless, if that spouse has not either expressly or tacitly condoned the other's fault, condoned the other's fault, so your wife committed adultery and actually somehow you condoned and agreed to it, that you were Your relationship was such that you were kind of happy for her to go off with another bloke for a while, that that would then be different. You can't then blame her for having done so.
1: Presumably, that would include having sexual intercourse
0: with your wife and the knowledge that she was in the midst of an adulterous affair. We're into a question of canon law there, so I'm going to have to pass uh, in part. But condoning the fault isn't the same thing as knowing about the fault. Mm -hmm. More than that, um, you need to ask a canon lawyer. Um, Tacitly condone the other's fault. He or she has the right to sever the common conjugal life, provided he or she has not consented to the adultery, nor been the cause of it, nor also committed adultery. So adultery is a serious enough breach in a marriage relationship that it can be a ground for permanent separation.
2: And boy, that cause of it can sure be interpreted very, yeah, absolutely. very widely.
1: That's yeah. hard, isn't it? You're causing it. How can you be causing it? You yeah. can He me to it. Yeah.
2: yeah, you can use that all for all sorts of subjective...
1: I things. never got from him...
0: Well, let's move on, because actually, (laughs) what you're describing is actually more a question of unduly difficult. Um, So um, Canon 115.3.1, a spouse who occasions grave danger of soul or body to the other or to the children or otherwise makes the common life unduly difficult, provides the other spouse with a reason to leave, either by the decree of the local ordinary, or if there is delay in danger, even to his or her own authority. Now, the canons are somehow envisaging that the bishop would decree that you have permission to separate. In our context, um, that doesn't happen. I can imagine other... Church context where it might uh, a more Catholic culture where everything is much more integrated, but that's not where we are. So although the canons refer to that, don't expect to be looking for a decree from your bishop <laughs> or your in, within the ordinary your ordinary for that. But the bottom line there, though, in all cases, when the reason for separation ceases, the common conjugal life is to be restored, unless otherwise provided by ecclesiastical authority. And of course you can imagine a situation, you don't need to imagine hard, where one of the parties wants to get back together and the other, there was some reason to separate in the past. Well, the fact that they're married, they are obliged to come back together. Now, if they're not willing, you can't force them to, but before God and the moral law they are obliged to come together. So it doesn't... It's not likely to help to have the parish priest ring the doorbell and say, you need to move back in with him now. Um, But if we are, as pastors, going to point out, in tough situations, (coughs) the moral obligations of our faithful, um, this is one of those scenarios. Unduly difficult. Now, the church has obviously put quite a wide category in there. and applies to
1: most women,
0: Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. A, wo- a woman told me last week <laughs> it applied to most men. <laughs> 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 Those of us who are not married would never dare say anything like <laughs> <laughs> oh, we that. <were>, we <laughs> So a question like that, unduly difficult, the two partners, the two spouses, may well disagree as to whether one of them is being unduly difficult. <laughs> uh,
2: they put that, that wiggle clause the in there, same with the cause, causing the adultery. Good. One spouse can say, they caused the adultery by, uh, by the, 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 the being argumentative and not giving the... There is quite a lot of... Well, that's it wiggle room in there. That's
0: you could say, you, could, say, oh, sure you it could say wiggle room, or you could say actually describing the reality. Yeah. Uh, so who determines whether it's someone's it's been unduly bad. difficult? Well, you, you've, you've well, but, but as, a, as a matter of morality, yeah. as the pastor, yes, uh, and I've good. had this conversation yeah. with couples, um and sometimes in both directions when, when they're not even agreeing on whether they should be separate to point out well is there is he being unduly difficult is she being unduly difficult uh, or does does the other one say that you are being unduly difficult even if you don't think you're being unduly difficult so subjective
3: feelings but because, because the law because canon law can only take you so far because it's dealing with human beings exactly. and,
0: and human beings human beings living at, at, when we're like onions aren't we you, you, you just cannot do what you want what well, you want, I want is it. a list
2: is, is, is a list not, I'm not saying I want that but I am saying that because mm-hmm. of these wiggle room these subjective yeah. causes yeah. it does I mean there's quite a lot of latitude and I think that's lot there is a lot of latitude is, yeah there yeah. is doesn't that then pour into the whole annulment, the, the, the plethora of annulments, which many are complaining about in America. I'm not taking a stand, I'm just saying that that these sorts of clauses tend to suggest that uh, unduly difficult is, is very much an emotional state statement. And I, I, difficulty is something you feel. You can't point to material grounds there you can only talk about someone feeling really really bad because the other person is doing something that's difficult
0: morally speaking though i think there is a principle being established here that there apart from anything else that there has to be grounds to separate it's not just i don't love him anymore
1: father marriage guidance counselors will sometimes advise separation uh the question I have is of course I think I've already answered in my head there is a Catholic marriage guidance advisory service as opposed to which is quite separate from the marriage guidance service which we know as is that
0: correct? there is how Catholic that Catholic marriage advisory service is going to (coughs) be is going to vary so some of those will be very liberal, well or just very influenced by our secular society and so they might be good at counselling that doesn't mean they're, they're good that at, the, <laughs> yeah, or at the vision of faith mm. in terms of the importance of them getting back together. That said, my experience has been on this question that um, Catholic marriage care, marriage care is the term that's called now. Um, they want the couple to try and get back together and the nice thing is I've seen cases where they've succeeded. I've also seen cases where they haven't. Because these are be the
1: people who would be advising on the difficulties.
0: Yes. Yes. Though whether they'd be addressing the question, whether there are grounds to separate, yeah, I don't think you can expect them to be okay. thinking or knowledgeable. They'll be a, approaching it as a psychologist and a counsellor. And it's at the level of counselling, if the relationship isn't working, whether that that implies also economical grounds is kind of somebody else's question. Well, it be it'd be th- it'd be nice if that all worked together, but I, I don't.
2: There were the three main grounds: there was abuse, adultery, and abandonment, and but those were secular, but I, then yeah. they sort of coincide a bit with the, the prevailing <coughs> attitude towards the indissolubility of marriage. So those were grounds for separation. They were mm-hmm. sort of.
0: Well, are those all in here?
2: Abandonment, adultery, and abuse.
0: So abuse, grave danger. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. And it says of soul as well as of body. So it doesn't just have to be physical right. danger. So verbal abuse. Yeah. Um, can we move on from this? Yeah. Yeah. So th- I, this this is trying to establish a moral basis of what we're talking about so marriage in the law of Christ is indissoluble for life but that there are grounds to separate but if you're separated before God you remain married now where does that leave you so the next two pages are living as someone who is divorced and remarried or living as what's called brother and sister so page two living as divorced and remarried Catholics. So the Church tells you not to get remarried, but you do anyway. Where does that leave you in the Church? Well, I've tried to establish a principle at the top there in italics, that marriage is a public, not a private reality, and divorce and remarriage thus affects the remarried in their relationship with the community of the Church and the sacraments of the Church. That marriage isn't just a private thing. It's not just, well this is what we've decided and it's not for the church to say otherwise. Well no, you're affecting the church if you're doing this. So it's affecting your relationship with the church and with the sentence. So where are you as a divorced and remarried Catholic? Well, to go through the points on that sheet. A divorced and remarried Catholic, firstly I'm quoting the catechism there, objectively contravenes God's God's law. Objectively. So subjectively, how guilty are you? Well, that's a different question. Is a lot of it your husband's fault because of how awful he was to you? Maybe. But objectively, you are contravening God's law. As a consequence, you cannot receive Holy Communion. The then quoted Familiaris Consortio of John Paul II, Their state and condition of life objectively contradict that union of love between Christ and his church, which is signified and affected by the Eucharist. If these people were admitted to the Eucharist, the faithful would be led into error and confusion regarding the church's teaching about the indissolubility of marriage. And
1: there's absolutely no exception to that. I can think of a case where a lady I know uh, was divorced by her husband, didn't want to be divorced. What happened in a case like that? She's automatically cut off and sucked
0: from the church? Has she remarried?
1: Uh, Well, yes, she has, but let's suppose she hasn't.
0: If she hasn't, well, then we're we're going back back to separation. 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 It's separation, the grounds for separation, because her husband (coughs) (coughs) um, is being remarried, that is the the sticking point. It is, yeah. yeah. That's abandonment, is there, I And it's not her fault she's been abandoned. But if she chooses to remarry, that is her decision. So you can't receive communion. So John Paul II articulated elsewhere also this theology that Christ and the church is a union. Marriage is a participation of that union of Christ and the church. Christ and the church cannot be divorced. If you Divorce and remarriage, you are breaking that sign value of Christ and the Church, which is affected in the Eucharist, and so that affects you in your participation in the Eucharist. Next bullet point. Such a person cannot exercise certain ecclesial responsibilities. Now, as I've noted, that's not further specified. So you are in a public role in the Church. If your life contravenes God's law in as serious a matter as marriage, what public example are you setting? Well, certain ecclesial responsibilities would be excluded to you. Now, the canon and the uh, the catechism doesn't specify what those would be. I've speculated a choir master, an organist, chairman of a parish pastoral council, these might be roles... That would exclude uh, that someone would be excluded from.: I'm sorry to keep on.
1: How deeply should one dig? I, 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 I know of a, of a woman in the congregation at which, in which I serve, uh, who I think is possibly living with someone to whom she is not married. Uh, don't know. reasonably confident. I'm not the parish priest. She comes up for communion.
0: Receives second. There's a, if you're not the parish priest you have a different responsibility to someone who is the parish priest okay. um, even as the parish priest I don't think it's my role to be going around prying into everybody's private life it's different if something is publicly manifest hmm. now they might publicly manifest it to me they might publicly manifest it to other people and so I need to go to so and so and say, I hear from other people that you're living with somebody. Is this the case or not? So, obviously, to try and phrase that, avoiding starting with an accusation, why are you living with them? Mm-hmm. To start with, I hear from others. So, you, I think in my mind, where I've got this information from is very important. And annoyingly, sometimes you'll get that information in confession.
1: And you can't do anything
0: with it. So I I don't have that information. Um, So if somebody tells me in confession that they're divorced and remarried, but I don't know from any other context, then I don't know. So I continue Mm -hmm. to give that person communion. Even though you know? I don't know in a public capacity. Now, if I have the time, I should tell that person in confession when they tell me that they shouldn't be receiving communion Mm -hmm. but it might be that they refer to that but I think as they're saying that they're not coming to communion and then afterwards see they are in what capacity do I know this? Do I know it by gossip? Do I know it in a way that isn't gossip? Do I know it by speculation? If I know it by speculation, sometimes maybe you could address that to somebody. But you'd have to say, I'm a little unsure about something you referred to or implied. And then there's the other factor, that people will uh, avoid giving you the opportunity to raise certain things. So there are some people, I'm quite sure, dash by me in and out of church because... Because they know if they actually engaged, these kind of questions would come up. (laughs) And in a sense, they've made the decision to make it impossible for me to interact. Um, That's therefore between them and God. But they've. I need to avoid doing my part to cooperate with that avoidance. (coughs) But there is a stage in which. I just have to say, well, I don't know. I don't know in a capacity in which I can raise it.
1: Are we able to refuse uh, the sacrament?
0: That's the next page. (laughs) But but yes, we are. Yes, we are. Next bullet point. They cannot receive absolution in the sacrament of penance. And why is that? Because they haven't repented of their sin against marriage. Now, repentance, as we'll come on to when we look at confession next time... Involves amending your life or the resolution to amend your life. If your resolution is to continue living with this other person who isn't before God your spouse, then you're not sorry and therefore you're not able to receive absolution. Well, to live unchaste, to live unchastely, You can, you can. Brother and sister is the next page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just no, saying that. Yeah. yeah, so I'm assuming, therefore, when I say that, that you're living unchastely with this other person. And that's what the next line there says, unless he or she is committed to living in complete continence. details of that next page. So, the last two bullet points there, the church's role towards these people, someone who is divorced and remarried, first is the call to repentance, i.e. we cannot view their situation as acceptably permanent. Thus, their bar to communion is referred to as being as long as the situation persists, Rather than being referred to as permanent. And this is a point that is frequently ignored in the discussions. The people say, well are you saying that this person will never be able to come to communion for the rest of their life? Mm -hmm. No, I'm saying they can never come to communion until they resolve what's wrong. If they choose to never resolve it, that is their decision. Um, But it isn't in itself permanent. It's for as long as the situation persists. And the church's role is to call to repentance. So in my preaching, I preach about divorce from remarriage. marriage. In that, sometimes there will be enough allusions to different things that it will awaken something in someone's conscience, and they will come to confession. Um, you know, I've had this repeatedly over the years. Um, and obviously something has hit home to some degree. Someone comes to confession says, You said such and such in your sermon. Um, Well, that's a way in that when I'm only hearing things second-hand by gossip, uh, I can't be ringing on the doorbell kind of thing. But I can, by my preaching, be telling people in the general what's the case and hoping that will then filter back into what they're looking at in their life and hopefully that they'll bring that to a priest to be addressed. Last bullet point there, manifesting an attentive solitude, this is what the church should have, so that they do not consider themselves separated from the church in whose life they can and must participate as baptized persons. So the Catechism, um, as it says in the following pages and footnotes, the Catechism talks about how they are still called to come to Mass, still called to hear the Word of God, still called to pray. but as long as this remains unaddressed, unresolved in their life they cannot receive communion and that's just one of many things that could be wrong in your life that you are still called to do something even if you've not resolved something that is about your receiving communion That there are many things we need to sort out page 3 So we've already pointed to this um, living as brother and sister. So, as indicated above, if somebody divorced and remarried um, may be admitted to sacramental absolution and thus to Holy Communion if he or she is committed to living (coughs) in complete continence. Now what does that mean? It means, another phrase used is, living as brother and sister. So I'm with another person. But we resolve, we will not live as if we were husband and wife. We will live as if we are brother and sister. What's the context here. So, go through these bullet points. Firstly, a couple need, so this is a couple who are remarried. They're not in a real marriage, but they are together. A couple need to somehow be able to do this, i.e. remain together, without causing public scandal to others, especially to other Catholic parishioners. We might be led to think that it's actually all right because these respected people are remarried Catholics and appear to be living together as husband and wife. So Father smiles at this couple every week. I see Father chat to this couple every week. So divorce and remarriage can't really be that serious. So somehow that question of scandal has to be avoided if they're going to be remaining together. Um, second bullet point After such an absolution, so they brought this to the priest, they've been absolved, they may receive communion, but they would need to do so in such a way that does not cause scandal. For example, to do so in a parish that they're not well known. But
1: then they would become well known in the course of time, so they'd have to keep
0: moving. (laughs) Well, their previous marriage may not be well known. And this is a scenario I think is very common. That your previous marriage was quite some time ago. In the new parish, you're aware not to cause scandal, that you don't refer to your previous parish, or your previous marriage. Um. I then quoted from the CDF on this point. "This means in practice that when for serious reasons, for example, for the children's upbringing, a man and woman cannot satisfy the obligation to separate they take on themselves the duty to live in complete continence that is by abstaining from any acts proper to married couples in such a case they may receive holy communion as long as they respect the obligation to avoid giving scandal well the obligation to separate so you are divorced and remarried in general you have an obligation to separate from this new pseudo spouse what would be a reason to remain together well The example given there is children. So actually, you've been divorced and remarried for ten years, and you've actually got three children together with this second person. Well, you can't abandon those children by separating, because you've got a conflict of duties there. So you remain together, but not together as husband and wife. And that's obviously difficult but you have created a situation where you have a conflict of duties and the way around it, or to do, address both duties, you remain together but not as husband and wife, as brother and sister, and together are caring for the children, so that the children have their mother and father looking after them. Occasionally you fall into sin, but that's a different situation. Possibly. Yeah. Um and the intention is sort of husband and wife. If you occasionally fall into sin, when you sin you recognise it as such and you go to confession and you repent. You also need to avoid the occasions of sin, which mm-hmm. uh, sep-
1: mm-hmm.
0: separate Separate mm-hmm. things like separate beds, mm-hmm. separate bedrooms. Um Separate bathrooms. You could imagine a number of permutations that might vary with different couples. Indeed. Um, so so when
2: the first person comes, I've had sex with my wife. Let my
3: wife. That be... a Question about the, the, the moral um, status of the children of such unions. I hate this phrase. Such unions, you know. Um, <clears throat> what what was the church's
0: view of? Their legitimacy. Those three children. Um, you need to ask a canon lawyer. Uh, legitimacy, being illegitimate, isn't the same thing as a question of whether a marriage is valid. No. Um, because it's about public manifestation. So I don't think they would be declared illegitimate. But I think you need to ask a canon lawyer. I just ask the question because you know that this
3: is fraught with... Innocent parties.
0: Yes. And it's very difficult.
3: Yes. You know, I, I'm married to a woman whose parents were divorced when she was a teenager, and it's still, 40 years later, a very bitter mm. pill, and it is still ongoing. In, and they're in their 80s and separated and remarried two or three times, and it's mm-hmm. very difficult. Um, and, you know, she's a child of the first marriage, as it were, mm. but um, the children don't make a choice to be born. And you know, we're going to discuss later the rights of children. Mm-hmm. And when they're born into less than an ideal relationship which the church doesn't recognise, you know, where do they come in terms of baptism, first holy communion, come, you know, the the normal rights of children in a
0: family in the church? If the if their parents are able to receive communion, mm. then certainly their children are going to be admitted to the sacraments. Mm. But their children I would say, should be admitted to the sacraments even if their parents are not living according yeah. to the moral law. That's I a little more difficult, I think, to absolutize mm-hmm. in that how how a couple manifest their opposition to what the church teaches will affect whether you can say those children are being raised in the faith. from the viewpoint of psychology, sociology, yeah. you
3: know, how are two or three children Going to form relationships, if the church is requiring their parents to live apart conjugally, it's very difficult. You know, we aren't in the Victorian Edwardian era anymore, people did have separate bedrooms and came together for procreation, as it were, or recreation. Um, these children aren't, by the church's requ- requirement, being given the right role models for what will be expected of them. Yeah. Well, they weren't but in the first place
2: because they were living with someone who's not their, their spouse. Their, so, their living spouse. Yeah.
0: So, what you're doing is you're trying to make the best of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And the bad situation is something that's already been caused. The best you can do is to have the couple live as brother and sister, but remaining to care for their children. I mean, this can, comes
2: down to, you, that's what I think about the sin of Casper and, and Marston. And those guys, they're, they're they're hearing this and they are very much taking the case of the subjective side of things. Mm-hmm. And then that's why they're, Cosper and Marx are, are in favor of, of uh, liberalizing this a lot to where you can have a case of two people who are divorced and remarried not living as brother and sister. I think it's, in the end they're trying to say that there are be
0: I'm going to avoid going into that. If you want my analysis of what Casper's saying, if you go to my sermon website um, that has all these talks and things on them, there is a link on the right-hand column in which I address Casper's proposal to use the orthodox situation. But the orthodox say that your second marriage is a sin, so they do the service for you in penitential colours and you don't get the same wedding service you would get at a first wedding you get prayers of penitence rather than prayers of thanksgiving. Um, it's a crazy situation. And that's what Casper's calling for, that we give them a dispensation to not live the commandments, an economy and a dispensation. Anyway, can we come back to um, my notes here to try and get everything in, in an order? So avoiding scandal. Um, so you live in a parish where you're not known. Or you go to communion, you know your situation is not right, so you can't go to communion on a regular basis, but once a month you go to another parish where you're not known, and avoiding scandal, you can receive communion, but you don't in your regular parish. There are a number of ways you could avoid scandal. Bottom of the page there I've said, brother and sister do not share a bed together, uh, and there would be a need... There would need to be some reason, some grounds for them to continue living with this other person. Otherwise there's an obligation to separate. Now another obligation to stay together, uh, and I think this is much more common. So what kind of category of person is more likely to come to you penitent? Actually somebody old and thinking of death. Uh, They're old and thinking of death. And they are too physically frail to separate. Well it's not as we all know you can be old and still have a conjugal life. Um (laughs) well so so it doesn't automatically follow that they're living as brother and sister. But there are many other couples who will be in their (laughs) thirties or forties and the conjugal life has just kind of drifted away. Um, So just because a couple are together doesn't mean there is a conjugal life there's a presumption of it but anyway so your duty in old age to care for this other person who before God you're not married to but you do have this history together and you own a house together and everything it wouldn't be right to just separate at that stage so that would be another type of scenario and the church doesn't give an exhaustive list, um, but it says there have to be there's a general obligation to separate and there have to be serious grounds to remain together. If you remain together, you do so as brother and sister. Page four. So this is the question that I was asked a bit earlier. Do we have a right to deny someone communion? The church says yes. So, the couple hear what the church says, they don't accept it, and they march up to communion anyway. You have a duty to deny them communion. But, to say that more carefully, to go through the bullet points on that page. First, a priest needs to check the facts of the situation. So if I'm going to deny someone communion, I need to be very certain about the facts. Secondly, I need to seek to talk to that person or couple, not just to do this at a distance publicly. I need to seek to be, first of all, engaging them one-to-one. What do I need to engage them with? Well, the sub-bullet point's there. I need to say why they may not receive Holy Communion at present. They need to hear the reasons. They need to know what repentance in their situation involves so that yes you can come back to Christ and his church, yes you can come back to the sacraments but to do so means this second union you either have to separate or live as brother and sister. So we've got to explain what living in continence would mean for them, living as brother and sister. Next book, I would need to uh, explain the possibility of remaining continent while applying for and awaiting a request for a decree of nullity for the previous marriage. So, one of the things you would address with them is, well, maybe the reason your first marriage fell apart is actually it was never really a valid marriage to begin with. So, do you want to seek a decree of nullity for that? And a decree of nullity isn't... The church making the marriage unmarried, mm-hmm. it's declaring that there never was a marriage in the first place. So the word annulment is a bit of a misnomer, it's a declaration of nullity. But while you're awaiting that declaration, uh, you don't continue to live as if you were married in your new relationship. You'd need to be continent if you were wanting to be coming to the sacrament. Uh, Next bullet point, the need to accept the possibility of not being granted a decree of nullity and recognising that marriage enjoys the favour of the law. So this person, they say their first union wasn't a real marriage, that the church should give a declaration of nullity. Well, they can't presume that that will be the case. That marriage, this this phrase in the canon law is marriage enjoys the favour of the law. If it's had all the external reality, marriage enjoys the favour of the law. You need to show the contrary. And there's a process to do that. So next point, that marriage is a public and not a private reality, and thus the public determination by the authority of the church of the validity or invalidity of the first marriage is something that pertains to the very nature of marriage as a public reality. So if it takes a year or two to get an annulment, well, it took you a year or two to get married. It's it's a big deal, it's a public thing, it's not just something that happens overnight. But it's of the very nature of marriage that it's a big deal. Question.
3: If the church therefore officiates, or pre-officiates, at a marriage of Mr. A, who's... First marriage has been nullified. Yep. And Miss B, who is spinster, does the marriage service declare that his previous marriage has been
0: nullified to avoid public scandal or does it just ignore the fact? It would only be able to happen if the previous marriage had been declared null. So I guess you'd say that is always presumed. But there may be people at the
3: marriage ceremony who were friends of the first couple, who would therefore not know it's been nullified, in which case that could cause scandal.
0: Um, It could do. Uh, I remember being at one marriage where the priest actually ended up spending a fair bit of the sermon explaining what an annulment was, Mm. um, which was very surreal, but actually it was also rather surreal to have the children of the first marriage present at the second and everything Um, but there isn't in the ceremony a public declaration of that that the public declaration is that the church would only do the wedding if the couple were free to marry and obviously part of the difficulty in, in all this is the level of religious ignorance is such that people may well think that well the church sometimes does do a second marriage public face I was talking about really yeah.
3: and, and therefore people not knowing then making assumptions and the ceremony doesn't articulate that it's mm. back to your first question so I remember when the, you mentioned the Orthodox Church and it being penitential Right. when it was suggested when the Church of England started remarrying and divorcees in church mm. that that should also be the case there was a huge cry that this should not be the case it shouldn't mm. even be acknowledged Mm. that this is a new thing, and therefore should not have the same potentiality as if
0: the previous marriage hadn't taken place. Which, given that our Catholic theology says mm-hmm. the previous marriage didn't take place, there was the ceremony and the trapping, but it wasn't a marriage, mm. actually I think it's theologically right mm. that the second ceremony doesn't refer to the previous ceremony because we've just... Mm. In our legal processes, said that that ceremony was, for some reason, a fiction. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Continuing down the bullet points there. But if they insist on presenting themselves for communion anyway, the priest should refuse them. Um, now, next bullet point. Given that some people will deliberately make it difficult for you to talk to them about awkward things a priest might have to refuse without being able to speak to them privately. Uh, I have, I think, once had to do this, um, and obviously that is not the ideal, um, But, and I can't remember the detail, but I, can, I knew, um, and they knew I knew, but they'd managed to avoid us actually one-to-one discussing it. Final little thing there. Note the responsibility lies with the priest and may not be dispensed by the bishop. So actually the the CDF is making a point, not directly attacking this bishop and that bishop, of, of saying, well, you know, some people are kind of saying, well, I dispense you from that. Well, you can't be dispensed from the moral law. A bishop can't dispense a parish priest. A bishop certainly cannot command a parish priest to go contrary to this. So the discernment of cases in which the faithful who find themselves in the described situation are to be excluded from the Eucharistic Communion is the responsibility of the priest who is responsible for the community, i.e., the parish priest uh, in our English language. They are to be given precise instruction. they are to give precise instructions to the deacon or any extraordinary minister regarding the mode of acting in concrete situations. so and so is repeatedly presenting themselves defiantly I need to explain to the deacon so that they don't just go to the deacon instead of coming to me um, and if somebody's going to be really balshy about it I may have to explain to extraordinary Eucharistic ministers if I've got them um, the same thing and that is then making it public but the person is choosing to make it public mm. by entering into this attitude of defiance I'd rather go down to the liberal
2: church down the road that doesn't care. what. In, in, in the meantime, I'm trying to just sow dissension in the congregation about how unpastoral you are.
0: <laughs> and you, you get all those oh, yeah. different permutations. So you will get someone who will just, um, rather than be unpleasant to me and in the parish, will just shift parish. Um yeah, so you but, get but, but that.
2: But certainly trying to destroy you in the process. Well, the reputation, talk about how you're not helpful and you're unpastoral.
0: You're yeah, I've got that too. Um, um, but but the, the, the difference, in a sense, between the situation where an Anglican's attempting to enforce some sort of some sort of is sort of difference, difference is that people would uh, appeal to priests in another parish who would quite publicly yeah. contradict what you said and <clears> would. would uh, and, and
3: you would not get the support from the bishop either. Right. Uh, and, and they're, they're in right a the difference. And that, uh, but
0: What can happen in the Catholic Church too. Uh, so to so it is, right. it's not supposed to in the Catholic Church, but it does, it sure does. in our setup too. Um, okay. Um, very briefly, the final page, page five before lunch. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> page five here is a summary of canon law. So to repeat, I am not a canon lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to summarise some canon law here because there's this kind of weird in some senses theological thing that there are some marriages that are valid but able to be dissolved a sacramental marriage can never be dissolved a non-sacramental marriage has an element about it that lacks that same union and is capable of being dissolved So let me read through my notes here. Marriage is made by the properly expressed exchange of consent. A marriage attempted contrary to the law of the church is not properly expressed and thus not a real marriage. For example, a baptised Catholic marries in the registry office. So they haven't properly expressed their consent. Therefore it's not a real marriage. A sacramental marriage is one between two baptised persons. And is indissoluble. A non-sacramental marriage. Is a real natural bond. But it lacks sacramental character. It lacks the bonds that Christ brings to a marriage. This real natural bond is permanent. And what's called intrinsically indissoluble. In itself it can't be dissolved. But it is dissoluble extrinsically. By divine power exercised vicariously by the vicar of Christ. And so in that limited sense, it is dissoluble. it so has got a little table there, spelling that out. So, two non-baptised people who have exchanged consent. It's a valid marriage, it's non-sacramental, it's dissoluble. So it's valid, but it is dissoluble. It's real, but it is dissoluble. A baptized and a non baptized person who have exchanged consent. Likewise, valid, non sacramental, dissoluble. So they might have done this in church, but the person you married wasn't a Christian, it wasn't a sacrament, it as a non sacramental bond is real, is good, but it lacks that thing that would make it extrinsically indissoluble. Two baptized persons who have exchanged consent but not consummated the marriage in the marital act and sex. Well, they have a valid marriage, it is sacramental, but at that stage it's still dissoluble. Contrast two baptized persons who have exchanged consent and physically consummated the marriage, it's valid, it's sacramental, and indissoluble. Noted next, a couple who are impotent and unable to consummate the marriage have a real valid marriage but one that can be dissolved. So, actually I've not pastorally really come across this, but it is you can enter into a marriage knowing that your partner, partner is impotent and that you'll never be able to exchange relations, sexual relations. You can choose to enter into that but that's a difficult thing to make a marriage and it would always be capable of being dissolved. Mm. Last point there about as a because people sometimes wonder about this, the marriage of the Blessed Virgin Mary in <laughs>